Um, this week, we'll talk about non-technical parts of the data science interview. We already had an episode where we talk about uh, CV, like how do you prepare your CV and other aspects of the interview process. Um, you can go and check our website. We didn't talk a lot about the behavioral interviews and other less technical parts of the data science interview, which is what we, uh, we are going to cover today. So we have a special guest today, Nick. Nick started his career as software engineer on uh, Facebook's growth team. And then he worked as SafeGraph startup, like um, application analytics startup. Um, uh, he graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in system engineering. And uh, yeah, so you interned at Microsoft and uh, at Google. Google, right? yep. yes. And as we already know, Nick is an author of a book about ASIN data science interview. I think this is the name, ACE, the data science interview. We can see exactly. around there are like 20, and yeah, right here. And actually, <laughs> I also have a coffee. Yeah, amazing. Just, just arrived. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Yeah, just in time for, the, for that. Okay, anyways, welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be part of your community and uh, give a little talk as well as do the book of the week a little bit later on in the month. Yeah, thanks. So before we go into our main topic of acing the interviews, specifically behavioral interviews, let's start with your background. Can you tell yeah. us about your career journey so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had a pretty interesting background that's all around data, but um, in indirect ways. So in school, I studied systems engineering, which is sort of a mix of like operations research, business, math. Um, I was on the data infrastructure team as an intern at Google. I was a growth engineer and did um, data-driven experimentation, ran and implemented many A-B tests at Facebook. Um, and then I joined a location analytics startup, SafeGraph, that sold alternative data to hedge funds and retail analytics companies. And most recently, I wrote the book, Ace the Data Science Interview, which is kind of like the cracking the coding interview or the leak code for data scientists, machine learning engineers, and data analysts. So that's kind of my background around data. And when I read your um, bio, I think in the book has your bio biography, mm -hmm. and then it says that you're a career coach. coach. Sure. So what do you do as a career coach? Absolutely. So these days I'm super passionate. When COVID hit, I left my job and I thought, hmm, a lot of people got laid off. They had their offers rescinded. And I knew that there was a lot of advice given on how to break into product management, software engineering, but just not that much around data science. So these days, what I do is I work with different people who are trying to improve themselves in their interview and help them and coach them on positioning themselves for success in the job market and how to build portfolio projects, improve their resume and build up those technical skills to land their dream jobs in tech as a data scientist, machine learning engineer, or data analyst. So you basically help people get a job, right? Exactly. That's my goal nowadays. Okay. And how does, uh, like, let's say I want to find a job. I want to find a data science job. And then usually I apply, right? I send my CV and then I talk to a recruiter and then the, like it's actually a whole process, like there are many, many, many different steps. So what are the typical steps there in this process? Totally. So of course it depends company to company, but some of these larger FANG type companies like Facebook and Google, Amazon, what they do is they would have a phone screen with a recruiter, maybe even the hiring manager. If it was a smaller company, um, they just assess you. Then they might give you an online assessment um, where they would often ask either a coding question or a SQL question. Um, and then they usually, after these, bring you on site. Um, of course, in COVID times, no on site. So just like a panel of three or four more interviews that encompass technical, more system design, open-ended case type problems, as well as, of course, a behavioral interview with your probably soon-to-be hiring manager um, or director or someone else like that. So it's, it varies, but usually it sticks to this script. So there are like four or five uh, interviews in total, right? Yeah. These days, most companies are running four or five interviews by the end of it. Yeah, it's I a remember, lot. <laughs> yeah. I remember like six, seven years ago when I got my first data science job, I actually had just one interview. Sure. And that interview was a bit long. It was uh, one hour and a half. I mean, now by today's standard, maybe it's a short one. Yeah. But it was just one interview. And well, maybe it was two. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, after that interview, a couple of hours, uh, like what I call, about an offer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now things like even smaller companies don't do that anymore. I am wondering exactly. why. Exactly. So, so definitely when I'm talking about this, like four or five round thing is definitely more around those like unicorn Silicon Valley startups or fang type companies um, at smaller companies, you might have a more expedited process, partly because they realize talent doesn't put up with like a week's worth of interviewing. Right. Um, so that's one thing. And um, uh, another thing this is a very interesting mindset they have in hiring is like, they don't want false positives. They'd rather turn down people who are good than have hired somebody who suddenly um, turned out to be bad because it's very cumbersome to fire somebody and um, put them on a performance improvement plan. So that's why to weed out these false positives, one easy way is just make a tougher screening and like screen them multiple times. So that's kind of where the industry is headed recently. So it's, it's a pain for candidates. So I have complete empathy there. It's a pain, but it's just what it is these days. So, but also for companies, it's uh, not very easy to find so many people. You know, you have to find at least four or five people who can interview the candidates. It's very difficult. It's, even smaller startups do that these days. It, it's a tough matching problem. So some days you hear, oh, all the companies can't find enough talent. People are raising their wages. On the other hand, you still have a lot of folks who study data science who are like, dude, how do I break in? They're only hiring PhDs. They're only hiring people with years of experience. How do I break in as a fresh new graduate from my master's or bachelor's program? So, I mean, it's a tough matching problem. And like companies are complaining about talent and talent's complaining about companies. And I hope that with what work I do and the, what the book does is it at least bridges the gap a little closer so that companies are better able to ask questions and assess talent and talent who's super skilled technically is able to better portray their own skills and experience so that they don't get dinged for some arbitrary random reason that could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. And we already talked a bit, uh, like when you described the interview process, you mentioned this behavior interview part, which is an interview with uh, a hiring manager or a director uh, that uh, like that assesses how good you as a person or I don't know how yeah. you fit the company, uh, the company culture well. And I think not there are not so many materials out there that prepare you for that. Like yeah. I think technical part, like it's a bit easier because if you just go to your favorite search engine and then type, uh, like you'll find dozens, like, I don't know, sure. hundreds of different resources. But if you go and type something about behavioral interview, then maybe it's uh, tougher, right? Yeah, no. So so I think there is enough written about behavioral interviews, but it's not really geared towards data scientists and machine learning engineers because this kind of arbitrary questions were just like, tell me about your like biggest weakness. It's just mm-hmm. sort of like something you ask like a salesperson or something like that, but it's like, it's kind of random to be asking really smart technical people that kind of question because uh, often a lot of your hiring is actually around your strengths, not even your weaknesses. So there's definitely a lot of BS and like people who haven't been in the game, but um, behavioral interviews are really important. And like, definitely as technical people, we just think, oh, grind leak code. Oh, just practice your data structures or SQL or, you know, get really good at Kaggle and then you'll be fine. But there's this behavioral component that is important. So behavioral interviews, what they look for is soft skills. Because let's be honest, Alexi, part of being a data scientist isn't just sitting there and building a model. It's working with so many different stakeholders. So if you're not able to hold yourself, talk confidently, argue for your position or argue for your business recommendation, you're not going to be an effective data scientist because so much of it is the soft skills and communication and ability to present your results. Mm -hmm. So what else do these behavioral interviews look for is also position fit and culture fit. Let's be honest, like people, you want, people want to work with you. You want to work with other people who like you and you like them. So, you know, we're not robots, we're not machines and we're humans at the end of the day. So there is of course this aspect of like, do they fit in well? And I think it is a real component. People think, oh, that's just like a BS. But I think like Amazon, for example, has these Amazonian principles that they really adhere to that are not for everybody. Okay. And then startups have their own set of principles often where someone from a company like Google, I'm sure they're very smart, just might not be a good fit. So of course, these behavioral interviews also assess not just your soft skills, but just like how good you are for this specific role and this specific company. And there is an art to it, um, but we can talk a little bit more, uh, but yeah. Yeah, so basically it's not enough just to grind it, code, uh, learn, uh, I don't know, SQL, 
and then learn all the probability theory, all the machine learning, and expect that this is enough to uh, get a job, right? Because then, even though you pass all the others, there is this uh, 45 minute interview where they don't ask about theory, they don't ask about yeah. technical part. But actually, I I remember, so I interviewed with a company that mm -hmm. uh, the, the name of the company starts with F a couple of years ago, and uh, it ends with K. And uh, okay, what they got it. <laughs> what, uh, what they asked me is like, uh, I have a list here because I usually after interviews, I try to take a note of what they ask sure. for the reference. Mm -hmm. So they asked me, tell me about something you're proud of. Then the second one was, tell me about the time you disagreed and weren't right. Then tell me about the project that got delayed. What was the impact and what did I learn from that? And then tell me about time, something changed in your career. And then the last one was, what are your personal areas for, for improvement and why? And yeah, uh, yeah so this was, uh, it wasn't out of the blue for me because I interviewed with uh, big corp companies before, um, especially in Amazon. I think that Amazon there, like really their interviews, they like- Really hone this in, yeah. Yes. So their leadership principles are really yeah. important. So I was expecting that, but it's still, it's very hard to prepare, right? So with yeah. lead code, it's clear. You just go to lead code and then you solve these problems. Yeah. Right? But this, so- yeah, there no, there is a way to prepare. So it's good news and bad news. The bad news is it's, it is work. It's going to take some time. Good news is there is a process. It's not like some arbitrary thing that you can't predict, right? So in the book, I talk about some of these very common questions. And you actually got hit with some of these common questions, like tell me about your proudest career moment or something you're most, you know, they're looking for you to show off. That's like a kind of well-known question. And another one is like, talk about an unpopular or hard decision you had to make and how did you deal with it? That's another one that they're trying to see. Can you go against the grain? Can you do it tactfully? Because of course, you know, as a data scientist, you're going to be making some recommendations that rob other people the wrong way, or like we'll get a little bit of a pushback. Right. So I think these are very reasonable questions. So my advice for you to prepare is first of all, think about your most three most significant experiences. Maybe those are two jobs and uh, one portfolio project, or if you're still in school, maybe they're all just projects and internships. But think about your three most important experiences that you love to talk about, and then go look up. In my book, we talk about some of the common questions asked, but you can find these on the internet. What you should do is just simply make a grid so that for each of these questions, you can answer them like, what are you most proud of in this job, this job, or this project? Same way, what was the hardest part? What was the biggest bug? What was something that went haywire and how did you recover? What was a setback? Because really they fall into these kind of patterns of like, what did good, what did bad, and how did you deal with it both ways? So that's the first thing, like just systemize it with a grid, put it in an Excel sheet, and suddenly that will help you. Now, I know some people might listening might be thinking, hey, like, oh, like, why do we have to prepare so much? This is my own experience. I know it. But let's be honest. Some of these things you talk about are from a job you did a year or two ago. You forgot about it. It's been a year or two, right? And like, let's be honest, we don't talk about ourselves all the time. Like, oh, the best thing I ever did was this, 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 right? We're like used to being a little shyer, a little bit more humble, but this is not the time for that. So there is some element of practicing to be a little bit boastful, to get those points across of like why you're a kick-ass data scientist. Like it does require practice. It's not going to come easy and it requires you to talk to the mirror or talk to a friend or like, you know, talk to yourself and like verbalize these things and get those talking points down, but you can prepare. So that's my first thing, make a grid. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we put in the grid for these questions, right? Um, Alexia, are you familiar with the star format by any chance? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a common one. So for people who might not have heard of it, and there's just really great resources out there on the internet, also in my book, but out there on the internet, don't want to just keep plugging my book. Um, the star format is basically situation, task, action, result. It's a way to structure your story. So I'll give you an example. At um, Facebook, they asked me like, what's the time you use data to make a decision? Or like, let's say this is a kind of common question for a data oriented person. Like, tell me about time you use data to make a decision, right? Because they want to hear that you do data informed decision making, right? That's a big part of our jobs. Um, so my answer in the star format would be the situation I was at Facebook. And I was on the growth team and I was tasked with figuring out is Facebook stories good for new user retention, 
Meaning, is this product helping people who are new to the app stay on Facebook longer, the retention rate, right? So that's the situation. I was at Facebook, the task, I need to figure out this. So I, the actions I took, I analyzed a whole bunch of data, writing lots of SQL queries to understand how do new users interact with this feature set and looked for gaps that I thought could be good opportunities. The result, I was able to actually find real bugs that affected new users. And since I was a software engineer, I fixed these bugs. I also made recommendations to the Facebook stories team because they didn't really think about new users. They just thought about the, all the users in general. They weren't worried about the people who were new to the platform that actually impacted their next quarter's roadmap, right? And you see how I kind of like really forced myself to say situation, task, action, result. Maybe you don't have to be as hard hitting, but did you see just how I kind of narrowed down like this success story of like, wow, this guy actually did something with data and like impacted Facebook's roadmap. Like, great. And I kind of said that in probably eight sentences, 10, of course I said a little bit more, but I think, you know, you can get these stories down to a minute, minute and a half and those punchy exact stories that say, Hey, I improved the user retention rate. And I changed the whole org's roadmap are the things that you want to get across and work really well when you narrow down your story to the star format. Yeah, I guess here, like even though, even if at the, during the interview, you don't follow this exact format, but when you prepare to an interview and try to stick to the structure, this structure will just pop up when you, uh, like maybe even uh, you will not follow exactly like situation task, maybe like it will be yep. a bit different, but still like, because you prepared, when you were preparing, you were using this format. Then 100%. Yeah. And actually you touched on a good point. So I know some people in the audience are thinking, oh, um, I don't want to sound like a robot. I don't want to sound so scripted. I don't want to sound rehearsed. You wish you were that good. You wish you were an actor who just, you know, they did two minutes of prep in star format and then they hit it verbatim, right? You're not that good. So practicing beforehand won't make you sound like a robot. It will only get your point across better. You're not going to sound robotic. It's not like, you know, people have this mindset like, oh, if I prepare, it'll hurt me. Actually, probably not. Now, if you're the world's best salesman, Maybe, maybe you might sound too salesy, but let's be honest, most of the data scientists, machine learning engineers reading this stuff, or like listening to our podcast right now, they're not, you're not in that position that you just spit out things. So prepare, preparation is possible, take some work, but if you go systemized, it'll work out and you'll put, present yourself much, much better. Mm -hmm. And what about this tricky um tricky question so for me the tricky one that i wasn't able to answer during that interview i mentioned was tell me about the time you disagreed and weren't right and for me i was like eh, mm, eh, i don't remember and then, yeah uh, so how yeah. do you go about these tricky ones and the, for it's... example the, the the other one was about a project that got delayed so it's a very specific one and then okay like which project i had in my career actually got delayed well all of them Right? All of them, right? So, <laughs> so you... actually, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had a better answer, but just don't get tricked. Like what you, you're calling these tricky, but I think I have some of these in my book. They're not that tricky. Like a delay is a very common thing and a disagreement with somebody else. Like a common one I, I wrote in the book is tell me about a time you disagreed with a product manager or business stakeholder. Like that's like, that's what your job is. You're going to be working with these people. So they're actually not that tricky. I think tricky in this sense would be like tell me about your three biggest weaknesses but these days honestly that kind of question is a little taboo like people people think it's kind of dumb because it's it's a sort of like the typical answer is like oh i work too hard that's my biggest weakness i care too much it's like so people have like shied away from that question um and of course you know at some level they're looking for you to be you so like it's okay if it's not you know if you get stumped but definitely preparation makes perfect and like these are not actually that tricky. Like it, they were tricky in the moment, but like stepping back, every project gets delayed and every project has their disagreements. And it's up to you to think about these things before you even step into the interview room. Yeah. And I think um, you mentioned these Amazon leadership principles and Amazon using, uh, uses interviews to actually find out if people um, are, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they, they fit to these principles. Yep. Right? And I think these principles, they are kind of, they make sense. Like, I mean, they make sense for most, uh, for many companies. 
company, yeah. maybe like uh, you know frugality. I don't know about uh, every company, but yep. in general they make sense, right? Yep. And what I found useful for me personally when preparing is taking these leadership principles, and then uh, I was selecting. I think I selected two, not three projects, and then I had a grid sort of like with uh, two yep. projects, and then leadership principles from Amazon. And then I would put uh, like in this grid, like how I showed this leadership principle in this particular project. And that yep. was very helpful, not just for Amazon, but for a bunch of other companies as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make a grid. And as you hinted on, every company thinks that they're really unique, but a lot of these things, these questions that are asked are repetitive. And a lot of the principles of like, oh, we care customer first. You know, half the companies in Silicon Valley say, oh, we're customer first, you know, profit second, right? And I mean, I think Amazon does live by that a little bit better, but I'm just trying to say you're right that putting your work in, putting it that grid and really spelling it out in the star format beforehand won't just help you on Amazon, it'll just help you with any company. And this is the type of work you should be doing um, before you interview. And this is why I always say like this whole interview thing is an art. Some people just want to show up and think they'll ace the interview, but there's an art to preparing and it's not rocket science, but it is work and it is, you know, sometimes unintuitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think uh, so. another good thing about this Amazon leadership principles is that they are available, available publicly. Not many other, you know, similar, um, you know, values of other companies are also publicly available. Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say that that's because a lot of companies might not even have those values or be as value driven but i would say if there's a company that is value driven they will publicize it usually on their careers page or on their about page for example where i worked last safegraph was super careers driven to the point that we had our uh mission and values put on posters in every single room every single conference room and in the bathroom so while you're peeing at the urinal you're, it's right in front of you, one foot in front, and you can't help but look at it every day and read it and like kind of live by it, right? So, I mean, of course, goes company to company, but at my company, you know, if you were pooping, you'd, you'd be reading the principles, right? <laughs> so, um, I think like, I think it'll be easy. Mo- most companies try their best to publicize it, and the ones that do, you better expect that they're going to ask you those same kind of questions, right? So, this is the kind of prep work you can do beforehand so you don't get stumped because like, you know, if they publicize it that much, they're going to be asking you about it in pretty much every interview. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up, Alexi, is like often on an onsite for 45 minutes, you might have a strictly behavioral interview with a hiring manager. But let's be honest, most interviews will start with like kind of a, hey, tell me about yourself. Like, tell me about your project. Tell me about a failure, right? So these kind of things seep in, not just with your last round with the hiring manager, they seep into almost every interview, even at the beginning with the recruiter that says, oh, like we're data-driven. Like, tell me about how you use data to make decisions. Like you might be hit with that, like right from the beginning. Yeah, right. Uh, But that's not the only non-technical part uh, of the interview, right? There are other uh, parts. So what are they? Yeah. So another really popular one, especially in data science, are these project walkthrough questions where they ask you lots of details about a work you've done in the past. Right. So you might be thinking, oh, but doesn't every industry have that kind of question? Um, I think in coding, you'll definitely see more of an emphasis on like, hey, listen, nice that you did this project, but uh, reverse this linked list, you know, (laughs) or like, hey, that's cool. But like, you know, like do this graph theory problem, right? DFS, right? Data science, because it's such a broad field, especially in things like machine learning, it's such a broad field, you know, you can't really just hit you with like, a, okay, let's do linear regression now. You know, they can't just do that, right? So what they often do is they ask you about your project. And then if you happen to use, let's say, logistic regression, then they'll ask you lots more follow-on questions like, oh, like, oh, you use logistic regression. Why? Why not other techniques? Um, how did you validate assumptions? What performance metrics did you use? Did your model overfit? Why or why not? How do you deal with overfitting, right? So this starts getting into the technical realm. But again, it usually starts out kind of just more like telling me about your project and like what actually happened. And Alexi, the biggest thing I've noticed amongst data scientists, data-driven people is they don't talk about the results nearly enough. They talk too much about their technical details about a project and not enough with, oh, and I did this work and it saved the company a million dollars or, oh, 
I helped do this and it became the world's best selling this, you know, usually you see even the star format result is at the end. Um, often though, when you're talking about a project, that's called like bearing the lead. Like if you, if you like talk about like the impact of it at the end, that's like not interesting. Like I'd rather first you have tell me like, yeah, so this project made a million dollars. Let me tell you about like what I actually did. Mm -hmm. Right. That's like, Oh wow. Like that's super cool. Cause at the end of the day, Alexi, you're being hired to a business and we just want to see business impact. Sometimes, you know, I hate to tell data scientists this, but like how you did it sometimes might not even matter. Right. It's more about like what actually happened. Right. Exactly. So preparing your answers to these project walkthrough questions and like really understanding what is the quantifiable business impact, what actually happened and trying to make that at the start of your story is a real skill and is a real art. And it's has nothing to do with your technical abilities and it has to do with your preparation and your ability to like kind of convey, mm-hmm. you know, it's a behavioral kind of thing. Right. I think it's, um, there is this pyramid principle, um, from folks uh, from McKinsey. So yeah, basically when it. they do a presentation to executives, executives don't have time for, you know, a lot of stuff. So they just start with the end, like, okay, this is what we want to do at the end, like, or this is what the project achieved at the end, right? So they start with that. And then you build a pyramid from that. So you then you go into details. So you start with the most important thing and then you build, oh, this is how we did it. These are the three things that actually helped. And for these three things, this is like uh, what we did for these uh, things before, right? So you start with the most important thing. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So these project walkthrough questions are oftentimes just like, let's hear about your project, but they can also be good jumping points into technical things. So it's something you'll see at most companies um, and it'll sort of a blend of like, they'll ask you one time about logistic regression in your project, but then they'll also ask about like, oh, like how did you make sure the model got productionized or like, how did you like prevent disagreement? So like, you know, they'll mix it in, but it's another one that if you put the grid out and you really kind of anticipate some of these questions, like, Hey, how did you know it was successful? What was the hardest part about the project? Like there are some very standard questions that I talk about in the book that people ask about your projects. Um, as long as you make a grid, start it out and like anticipate these things again, you'll not only do well in behavioral, you'll also do well on these sort of semi-technical questions Mm -hmm. because you can anticipate they're going to ask you like, if you use this type of model, why not that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I am uh, also taking part uh, in interviews quite often. I'm interviewing mm-hmm. people, and usually these kind of questions I ask in the screening interview. So the, fir- sure. the very first interview, I ask, "Hey, let's talk about your background. What kind of things you worked on?" And then, okay, now let's select one of the projects and do a deep dive in that project. Yep. And then we would uh, do what you call project walkthrough. I think the okay, this is uh, the project you took part in let's talk about that or right actually i usually ask uh, what kind of project you want to talk about let's pick yep. one and let's talk about that and this is how it usually happens yep yeah that's that's exactly it you're falling into what most companies do um, because at the end of the day they're not really trying to do a gotcha so they'll let you talk about what y- you know what you want to talk about but then if if that's a trade-off like if they're going to let you pick then you better come damn prepared to talk about your favorite project. And usually like pick two things, right? Usually like your most important work experience. And then if you're a junior in your career, maybe also a portfolio project or side project that's really interesting. So you come damn prepared because exactly like if they're going to let you pick your project, you better know every detail. And often these are like trying to just see like, you know, are you BSing on your project? It's so easy to be like, oh yeah, I did all this. And then it turns out, no, you and a team of seven people did this right you know back in the day in those school projects you know they'd all you know you'd be in a group of four usually only two of the four people even did the work right and that's why they do these project walkthrough questions just to see like did you actually do what you said you did and like do you actually understand things um yeah Yeah. and uh what i often notice uh, when we talk about uh projects and what I often notice candidates don't give enough business context like they immediately jump into technical things say, okay I used logistic regression I used logistic regression and it had like 70% accuracy it wasn't good enough so I used XGBoost and it had 80% of accuracy oh cool but tell me why why did you do this like what was the business problem you were solving what were you trying to achieve with this exactly like, and then uh, yeah at the end what you actually achieved so, so exactly. describing the problem um helps and and see if they started with the result yeah 
they wouldn't even just say I achieved this percent accuracy, right? Because then I'd push them to say, well, the business doesn't get paid in accuracy. They get paid in like, oh, it like drove this many dollars or like it reduced false negatives here by X percentage, which like reduced costs of this manual review process, you know, like, so once you bring what you said, the pyramid principle, bring up that result higher and then like make that result a business result, a product result, not like a technical result you'll find yourself coming across as a much more mature data person because at the end of the day, like you're here to drive business results, not to improve the accuracy of some small thing by X percentage without the context of, you know, without the product or business context. Mm -hmm. How much time do you think um, you should spend uh, on giving the business context when you answer these kind of questions? So nobody loves people who ramble, right? So just try to keep your whole answer to like two minutes. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing I've noticed, Alexi, of coaching different people is uh, in some cultures, people try to be exhaustive and give every single detail because mm -hmm. they think that if they don't hit every point, they're going to get points dinged. But I think what you got to think about is this is a conversation. You're having a conversation with your future boss or your future coworker. So you don't just like rapid fire oh, here's everything I did. Here are all the technical details, blah, blah, blah. Like if you're talking to a normal person, it's just like, dude, I don't even need to hit all these technical details. Let's first talk about like, oh yeah, this is what I did. It was really cool because of this, right? So I think if people framed it as like a conversation with their future coworker and less of like, a, oh, they're trying to quiz me and like get me, mm -hmm. that mindset change will itself lend you to have better answers, okay? Um, and then your specific question, sorry, what was your specific question again? Was, I um, don't remember. Uh, okay, like I how much time you. we should spend? Uh, oh, how much time? So yeah, don't yeah. ramble. So keep it two minutes. First of all, keep uh -huh. it two minutes. And then in business context, like, I don't know, it could be a good 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. And of course, if they're curious about one thing or another, they're going to ask follow-up questions because it's a conversation. So mm -hmm. yeah, keep things on the shorter end. And this is again, where it's like preparing beforehand will stop you from rambling. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually you brought up a good point uh, when somebody is trying to cover every single detail and when i interview i i feel like i don't feel very good to say hey stop like let's not go into details because i have to interrupt and uh, yeah and then i often have to do this because uh, you know like we yeah. have limited amount of time right so we want to cover many things like, and then I don't feel good about you know shutting yeah. the person uh, no uh, it's like, asking them to stop talking and, basically. And, and Alexi, you're not unique in feeling bad. So you know what happens? You just let them ramble. <laughs> and then you walk away and you say, oh, I didn't really like this person. And they get mm -hmm. rejected and they're like, oh, wow, I, I hit every point. I said everything amazing. Like, I wonder, you know, F that company, like I did amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And what you, because people are feel awkward to shut down somebody. And then people are also not self-aware that they've been talking for seven minutes, eight minutes and not even making sense. People use so much jargon in this and that. Um, I have some like crazy stories of that where it's just like, um, I'll give you an example. Um, hopefully she's not listening. Um, this person worked on a male contraceptive device. So instead of, uh, yeah, male contraceptive, right? So that's already an interesting topic, but they like didn't even talk about that. They said, oh, I'm doing some testing around a medical device, blah, 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 survival analysis. I couldn't keep track of what they're saying. And I'm like, yo, I'm in data. I have no idea what you're saying. And I happen to know this person personally. And I'm like, dude, like, why don't you just start from the top? Like, oh, I work at a company that's making a male contraceptive. And one of the biggest things is how long will it work? Will it work for a year or two? So I did survival analysis. If they just said that, mm -hmm. then I'd be like, oh yeah, survival analysis. Great. Like, let's talk about the results. But they like buried the lead and they just said, oh, uh, obscure medical device this is this and I just ranted on I could not understand and it is so easy to fall into the trap and everyone thinks like oh yeah that's that's other people making that mistake I will never make that mistake but my goodness it is so easy especially for people who don't talk for a living you know if you're not a salesperson or a marketing expert like you're gonna fall into these traps so all you can do is prepare yeah exactly because uh, if uh, I don't prepare then uh, like uh... Questions like I just mentioned, behavioral ones, mm -hmm. they get me puzzled. Like, I'm like, okay, what do I answer? Like, I don't know. Like, and then I answer, yeah, sorry. And then, uh, like, even worse, I can start, you know, rumbling and then uh, yep. lose 10 minutes of time without really answering the thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned this, like uh, sometimes people start, you know, sprinkling buzzwords, like mentioning all the things. And uh, so there is a comment uh, that I once interviewed somebody who said they used SVM in a project, but uh, they couldn't really walk through uh, what the model is, what is the reason they chose this model. And I think this is the reason we have this kind of interview questions, right? To understand how much the person actually knows. So yep. this is, I guess, I guess it's getting on the technical side, yeah. but the non-technical part of this uh, would be maybe if you don't know much about these things, uh, maybe you don't say about them, right? Right, right, right. Real bullets on your thing because you're going to be asked about them. And let's be honest, like, let's say you did do SVM and you just don't know everything about it. Well, go prepare that before your interview because mm-hmm. you better believe they're going to ask about it. Right. So that's why some people who know linear regression do a linear regression project, but really understand that might mm-hmm. do better than someone who made some crazy RNN or CNN using TensorFlow mm-hmm. and Keras, but like literally doesn't know what are the foundations of this field, mm-hmm. you know? And like, that's how you like assess them. So, you yeah. know, it, it, it goes both technical and behavioral because yeah, in our field, we just can't ask, you know, a leak code type question that's like, oh, like, tell me everything you know about SVM or like, let's test mm-hmm. you. So it comes let's implement through. implement SVM, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's why they come through these like conversations. And then if you're having a conversation, there's no right or wrong answer. Suddenly this behavioral stuff around pacing, not rambling, preparing star format starts to matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I remember in one interview, the interviewer asked me, hey, what's your favorite model? And then I thought, okay, the next question would be, tell me uh, how this model actually works. And then I answered linear regression. And then he was about, oh, what's your second favorite one? (laughs) You wanted me to pick something like complex. Ah, okay. Yeah. Usually what I've seen, and I talk about it in the book, um, AC Data Science Review, what what I've seen is, what's your favorite model? Then they say something really crazy. And then the follow-up question is like, okay, so what do you know about it? And they're like, uh, I read a research paper like seven months ago. I never used it. And it's just like, oh, you know, so you're better off using something that you've actually used in a project because think about this, like, oh yeah, I love linear regression. I made a million dollars with it in the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, even if they don't, they want something more complex, right? Do you see how I just twisted that? They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, wait, what? Tell, Tell me more. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, oh, it turns out you know, predicting the oil price is just like a linear regression based on these four variables. And I did PCA to find that these four variables were the best predictive and I made a million dollars. Wow. Suddenly your project was amazing, even though it's a linear regression. So maybe sometimes people push you to do something more complex, but I think linear regression, honestly, is a great answer for mm-hmm. what's your favorite model or decision trees, random forest. Great. Mm-hmm. What if I haven't worked in a project that brought $1 million? Like what do I Perfect. pick? Yeah, that's a real question, right? Because let's say you're a student, right? Uh-huh. All you've done is internships or not even any internships, right? I feel like there's an art to being able to quantify your impact, right? So I talk a ton about in my book, the value of making kick-ass portfolio projects, right? So you can always quantify your impact like, oh, 7,000 people used my little web app or like downloaded my Chrome extension or like, um, you know, my mo- like, yeah, something like that, right? So you can always like find some clever way to quantify it. So it doesn't even have to be a million dollars. Maybe it's mm-hmm. like I reduced the latency by 5% or like I increased AUC by 7%. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are a little bit more technical. And like, yes, if you don't have a real business impact because it's a pet project, let's go mm-hmm. for the technical impact because at least some impact is better than like, mm-hmm. I just did something and there's no impact. But you're right. Like um, there's a benefit to doing real business things. Um, so yeah, where you can like try to work on more mm-hmm. real things, like scrape your favorite websites, mm-hmm. look at their data so that at least it's somewhat more realistic, you know, um, than doing a very pet project and saying there was no business impact. Mm-hmm. How do you think these questions vary, uh, how they are different for different levels? So imagine that if somebody is interviewing for a junior position, the questions they get uh, are a bit different from somebody who is interviewing for a senior or even uh, like, I don't know, after senior for staff right. positions. Like staff or like principal yeah. or yeah. So I think on behavioral, like questions about your biggest failure, this and that are very, are going to be asked at every level because everyone should have some kind of failure. I think just at the higher levels, you have to give more mature answers. And often there you might be asked more like people type questions because often a lot of being a principal or director of data science is 
maybe less about being the world's best expert at one specific technique and more about, hey, like, how do you work with others to like drive an initiative or business impact, which is exactly why questions about your project delay or like dealing with tough personalities are so popular, right? So there might be more of an emphasis on the human aspect on the senior roles compared to a junior role. You just want to know more about their technical details on a project or like how they dealt with failure, but not necessarily like, oh, tell me about the 11 personalities you know, responsible in like the seven year project you did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think that's one thing. And then, yeah. And then um, going technical for a second. Another thing is you might be asked, you know, some simple SQL questions at all kinds of levels, but I think more open-ended case studies are expected for our senior talent. So if you want, we can talk about that. Um, these open-ended case studies, they often incorporate business or product sense. So I'll give you an example. One question might be like, what metrics would you use to quantify the success of Facebook dating? Right. So that's an example of a question. Here's another question that's like an open-ended. So that one is more like a product sensey one around like product metrics. Here's an open-ended one that's more like system designing, which is like, hey, how would you go about building Uber's surge pricing algorithm? Right. So for both of these kind of open-ended questions. For more senior roles, you'll be asked to give more mature answers and like have more interesting thought and perspective. A very junior person might just jump into the answer and be like, oh, Uber search pricing, I'd use this algorithm, you know? Mm-hmm. And a more senior person would be like, hey, like, why are we even building the search pricing algorithm? Is it to balance supply and demand? Is it that drivers are complaining that they're leaving money on the table? Or is it riders complaining? that, hey, I can't get a cab um, because it's New Year's Eve and like there's just not enough drivers and I wish there were more cabs on the market, you know? Like who is motivating this problem? Or is it Uber who's like, dude, I think I could make more money. Things are working right now. But if I just doubled my pricing, I could probably make 50% more money without much drop-off, right? Like who is motivating this problem? I mean, all parts of it are probably real for search pricing, but these are the kind of maturity things you mm-hmm. get for more senior questions, sorry, for more senior people, um, what kind of answers they have to give, yeah. Okay, so for case, case studies, basically, if you're interviewing uh, for a senior position, you need to think, uh, like, when they ask questions, you do not jump into solution immediately. Yeah. You first ask why, so why are we even talking about this problem, and then who is motivating this, like, from where this is coming from. Yep, right? exactly. And, then and I want to... I want to caveat one thing though, like this kind of framework of clarifying, I think it's true for all levels, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just saying the way the senior management might clarify would be more interesting than a junior person. Junior person Mm -hmm. is like, oh, like what are the technical requirements? And a senior person might be like, hey, is this a one-year initiative? Or like, are we just trying to MVP it, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're used to like some projects being a two-month MVP and some might be a year long. But a junior person is not even thinking like, oh, I didn't know there's a multi-year Uber surge pricing thing. And I mean, in Uber, there's going to be a whole team around it. It's probably like a multi-year project and keep improving it. Right. So I don't want to like make it seem like, oh, if you're junior, just jump in. I think at all levels, we should clarify. And I think it's one of the biggest tips I give in chapters 10 and 11, which are about product sense and case interviews. It's the framework on how to approach these open-ended questions. And the first step, as you said, clarify, clarify, clarify. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the first step. Maybe you can tell us a bit more. What are these product sense interviews? What are they about? Sure. So, yeah. So um, product sense interviews are not asked by every company, but they are asked by more product-driven companies like Facebook for roles like product data science, um, for roles like business analytics, marketing analytics. So most analytics jobs will have this, um, but then also more product-oriented roles where you're actually supporting a PM and engineers. So it's less of like, you know, yeah. So companies like Facebook, Uber, Snapchat, Airbnb will ask these more product oriented questions. And they're kind of almost similar to what PMs, product managers will be asked in interviews, um, but often have a more data spin to them. And the reason these questions are asked is because in these kind of companies, product data scientists work hand in hand with PMs to develop the roadmap. So if you don't have a good product sense, you know, how are you going to help develop, uh, develop the product roadmap with the PM? So that's why these product sense questions like, 
what would the success metrics you'd use for Facebook dating or, Hey, do you have any product improvement ideas to improve retention or engagement of this feature are asked to even data scientists, not just product managers um, at these types of companies. And uh, like how, so if I get a question, like we have this feature, what do you think? How do you think about improving this? What should we yeah. do? What kind of answer is expected? Should I go, oh, let's change, uh, you know, this uh, button from red to blue, maybe more people yeah. will like it. What kind of question, what kind of answer is expected there? Yeah. So let's say your question was, how do we improve um, engagement for Facebook Live, mm -hmm. right? So the first step actually is, And this is the kind of, again, where if you're going to notice a theme, it's like you have to do your homework, you have to do your prep work, know the company and know their products, right? Because you're allowed to clarify like, oh, can you tell me more about Facebook Live? Or like, hey, you know, I don't really use Facebook much, but I'm guessing it's like a lot like YouTube Live. And then, you know, the it's a conversation. So the interviewer will be like, yeah, yeah, it is. Like, think of it as YouTube Live, honestly. But I mean, that's the first thing, like you have to prepare and know your products because otherwise, like how the hell are you going to answer your question? And let's be honest, these companies are not going to ask, Uber's not going to ask about Facebook Live. Facebook's going to ask about Facebook Live. <laughs> and Uber's going to ask about surge pricing or something to do with how would you improve the rider or driver app, right? So usually the first thing you try to do is, again, clarify. So I talk about that framework in our book. You first have to say, hey, when you say improve, what are we trying to improve? What's the key metric we're trying to improve? right? Because improve is a very nebulous terms. And at these large product driven companies, there's a metric like engagement or revenue or time spent that wants to be improved. Then you ask like, Hey, like, you know, I think for an improvement thing, that's like a little bit less popular you ask, but there, then you just start brainstorming with like, Oh, like, you know, I know for engagement, this is, has worked well at my past company. So I could try this. Or like, I know that you know, pop-ups or notifications are always great for engagement. So, you know, I look at YouTube, uh, sorry, I'd look at Facebook live and like, look at their notifications and see, can we do more real-time notifications on the product? Right. So there usually the interviewer will help navigate you to something that they want to talk about. Because I know like at such an open-ended question, how do you improve Facebook live engagement? That's, you know, there's a That's, that's too hard of a question, right? So usually it's a conversation. They'll narrow it down to you. So it's not as daunting as it seems, but definitely a mistake again is they just jump in like, oh, I'd add this feature, you know, without even clarifying what are we trying to do and what's the product and business goal that we need to align our answer with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, this, uh, one of the things you mentioned is we need to say what is the key metric. And I think this is a tricky one, right? Especially if you don't have a lot of experience in this domain. Like even yeah. maybe you're a senior already and you work in, so I work in online classifieds. So I can understand what kind of things are important. But right. if I go to a different website outside of my typical expertise, I don't know, let's say Uber, right? So then I don't know much about Uber. I don't know right. much about this domain. domain. Like how do I come up with, good metrics a good or not just a set of I, metrics but the key metric Is i'll tell you i'll tell you a politically correct answer and then i'll tell you the real answer okay right? and i talk about this in my book as well politically correct answer is alexi you don't need to know about uber's business we're judging all candidates fairly and it's okay that you have a different background um we'll give you the context needed to answer the question mm -hmm. that's the politically correct answer and now here's the real answer i'm an interviewer i work at uber All day, I'm thinking about this damn problem around surge pricing. All day, I'm thinking about this. All day, the management's beating my ass saying, hey, we're dropping, like, you know, our driver numbers are not good. Like, riders are happy to pay money, but we can't recruit drivers fast enough in peak times. We can't bring them online. So they're worried about that all the time. And then guess who they're interviewing you, Alexi, against? An internal candidate, a intern who's now looking for a return offer, two people who worked at Lyft, someone who worked at Facebook and did a similar problem, and then you, who might mm -hmm. not have contacts. So they tell you, oh, we're all looking at you equally, but let's be honest, you know, the internal Uber candidate has a leg up, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you fix yourself? Like, again, for people watching at home, like this is not to like discourage you to be like, oh crap, I'm never going to get a job at Uber because they're, you know, Uber internal candidates. You know, it's not like that, but it's like, 
there is an art to preparing. And again, I talk about that in the book, like some tactical ways to prepare for these product interviews. One is Uber is a public company. You can read their reports. You can see what are their financial metrics that they're reporting against. You can see their CEO, Dara, saying, hey, listen, we're trying to focus on profit because we have great revenues, but not good profit. So we're working on that. So that's one way that you can actually see these things broken down. Secondly, go look on Reddit, go look on Quora, go read news stories around Uber and you'll start seeing actual business analysts and like stock reporters and things like that talk about the metrics you need, right? So even if you don't have perfect context, if you're a reasonably smart data scientist and you do your homework, you look at their public reports, you look at the news, you look at what people are saying, or let's pretend it was a private company, right? There's usually a public comparable that you can look at. You know what I mean? Like, so for a while, you know, DoorDash was private, but you could have always looked at Uber Eats data or Grubhub data, you know, to know these answers. So that's probably my first answer, which is like, do your damn homework. Yeah, (laughs) do your damn homework because it'll give you an unfair leg up. And Mm -hmm. I hate to say that, you know, someone might be thinking, hey, that's not fair. Like, that doesn't mean you're smart. That just means you did your homework. But like, like, let's face it, like doing your homework is going to give you a leg up. And like, if you're trying to get a job at Uber, knowing the ins and outs of the Uber product Mm -hmm. is going to help you for sure. What if you're interviewed for... Google or Microsoft or like some giant tech company that is doing everything. Yeah. Then I think you'd still want to know what their product set were. And oftentimes you might under like know what team you're interviewing with. So let's say you're in, you know, you're interviewing, like, honestly, these days it's like data scientists on GCP, Google cloud platform. There might be a hundred teams there, but it's still GCP. It's not something else. Right. Mm-hmm. So go read the earnings reports or go see what, like um, Azure and AWS are doing, you know? And then that will give you some leg up. Now, of course, like they can still hit you with something that surprises you or like they ask about something really weird. But then of course, they will be smart enough usually to give you a little bit more context. Um, So it's not like you have to know every product and every product line, but I'm just trying to tell you like, hey, if you know overall what GCP is struggling with, you will have a better sense. Or if you know something more about cloud computing, or how enterprises use the cloud and like what metrics they look at, like total cost of ownership. Like even just knowing the term total cost of ownership is not something that a junior data scientist might know, but like a senior business leader thinks about all the time. All right. So I think there's always a way. And I think like there's no foolproof method for any of this. You can always get stumped. You can always be asked about a product in a weird way or interviewer might like not like your answer, but all we can do is improve your odds. Um, so it's a process, but you know, if you improve your odds significantly and you play the numbers game, that is hiring, right. You're not just ever interviewing for one company or interviewing with 10. If you can go from, instead of getting like one offer out of 10 to like two, we're in business, you're making money. This is great. So there's no foolproof plan. All, all we can do is up our chances. There are also like each company usually has a tech block and they're in the block. They talk about use cases right and often they mention at least we not always but sometimes in our tech block at OLX tech block we say that this is the metric we care and this is how much like this is what we wanted to optimize right so the end goal for this project was to impact this metric right so you can 100 yeah, go, go through that no 100 yeah. that's one of the best ways to prepare i i've i can't believe i forgot to mention this mm-hmm. but i talk about it in the book and on linkedin all the time Mm-hmm. case studies are one of the best ways to level up, right? Because it, it's more than just, oh, we use linear regression. It's explaining mm-hmm. you what was the business problem? What was the product problem? What were the technical techniques we used? How did we productionize our system? And, you know, in this era where ML ops is important and like people are talking about productionization and like deployment, it's not just enough to build the models. Reading these technical blogs gives you this kind of depth of understanding around a business and like around this problem that simply reading about a textbook, like, oh, here's how you do linear regression just doesn't give you. So you're hundred percent right. Go read their tech blog before you interview with that company. And they have a funny story about that. So a friend of mine was interviewing with SoundCloud. Uh, do you know SoundCloud? Mm-hmm. I like Spotify. So he was uh, being interviewed there and then uh, he read their blog and then uh, they had uh, the system design uh, interview. And then they asked, hey, let's design search 
for SoundCloud. And then he did a design and then they said, oh, really cool. Like it's almost like it's like a search system that we have. And he said, yes, I read your blog and I basically yeah. <laughs> just followed whatever you wrote in the blog and then they just designed the system like you did in your blog post. And then they yeah. said, oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. No, it, 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 it can happen. And you might be thinking like, oh, did that guy like fail? But actually, no, the guy, one, showed, mm-hmm. first of all, that he knew their architecture and like cared enough to read their tech blog, right? So remember right at the beginning, we talked about position and culture fit. Alexi, let's be honest, some of being a good employee is just giving a damn, right? So if, if you read about the, their technical blog before you interviewed, and they realize, oh, like this guy actually like, cared enough to read the blog. You're already scoring high marks there. Like, oh, this guy didn't just like shotgun applications, just spray and pray. They actually care about SoundCloud and they care about engineering enough to read our SoundCloud blog, you know? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, dude, he gave a correct answer because that's all these guys know. Mm-hmm. That's all these engineers know is their own architecture. So if someone just like regurgitates that, it's just like, oh, wow, like that was pretty good. Now, of course, they should have asked a better question, not something from their thing. But like, you'd be surprised how often this happens. Mm-hmm. And like, listen, I'm going to look for any advantage I can, right? Like politically correct answer would be like, oh, like they should have like nullified that and like said, oh, you know, he read the blog, so we should give him no marks. But like, let's mm-hmm. be honest, he crushed it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I hate to say that, but like, yeah. So it's on SoundCloud to ask better questions, but as a candidate, go, mm-hmm. go do that. Like, yeah, and you'll crush it and- you know, but just don't lie about it. Don't be like, oh, I had no idea you had a blog about this, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, as long as you're up front, they're going to be like, oh, dope. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. So there was something I wanted to ask you about the book. Absolutely. So when I was ordering this on Amazon, so I looked at the reviews just because I was curious. And in the, the reviews, uh, many reviews actually mentioned the cold emailing tip. And uh, they said that this was the most useful thing from the book. And I wanted to ask you what this thing is. All right. So I'm a little biased. I think out of this book, the most interesting part is the 201 real questions. But I feel like questions are just questions, right? It's great practice, but no one's like, oh my God, that changed my life. I think the most thing that like put people's like, like gave them like a light bulb moment, something that like really changed their outlook was my chapter on sending cold emails. So a cold email is an email sent to a stranger, right? Someone you didn't know. Someone you did know would be like a warm introduction or like if it was a friend of a friend, that's warm. Cold email is to a complete stranger. And it's not just even about email. You could send it on LinkedIn. You could send it as Twitter, like a cold Twitter DM. But the point is people are willing to help you. And if you reach out to people you don't know, you'll be surprised by the results. I got my last job at SafeGraph by writing a cold email to the CEO. And I put it up on my LinkedIn, like what that email looked like. And I talk about this all the time. I think people just love this chapter because they thought that they had to apply online with 300 other people, wait to get their resume screened. Often they never hear back. They don't even get an interview. So this kind of changes it up because you're actually doing the reach outs. And when you write a good reach out to somebody and say, hey, listen, I see you work at Uber. I analyzed the free data around New York City taxis. And I analyzed this. I made a public Tableau dashboard here. And I did some analysis with scikit-learn here. It's on my GitHub. And you link those two things to a hiring manager who was working on search pricing. They're going to be like, oh, that's awesome. Like, cool. We'll love to talk to you. Or like, oh yeah, I just forwarded you to the recruiter. And people just don't know that they can build portfolio projects and then email people, the right people to get ahead of this game of just applying online and just never hearing back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why people love it. That's cool. So this is basically the cover letter, but you don't send this cover letter to the recruiter, right? You send this cover letter directly to the hiring manager and right hiring and you manager. could and you could even send it to a recruiter too uh-huh. like I, I i i've had great luck with sending it to recruiters as well um ceos work too at smaller companies because they just want to hear from smart talented people i think the biggest thing is a cover letter is very formal and it's often generic for 99 percent of people so that's why so many jobs these days don't even ask for a cover letter if they do like nobody reads it no one has time for that but a crisp email Plus cover letter is like formatted in like a, just a clean page, a crisp email with like a hyperlink, like, Hey, 
here's my GitHub link or like, here's the project. Or they just embed the image. Like if you embed a GIF or an image, like, hey, look at this like visualization of all the taxis in New York City over 24 hours. I love transportation and I want to help build the future of mobility at Uber. Mm-hmm. That's like a two sentence thing. It's one GIF. That's way more alive and like showing that this person actually knows how to deal with like 8 million taxi trip record data and like did something with it than like any cover letter that just says, I'm a hardworking data scientist who's passionate about making a difference. You know, that's bullshit. Mm. So that's why this cold email stuff works. Yeah, thanks. We should be wrapping up um, just before we finish. Anything else you want to mention? Any tip you want to share? Uh, no, I would just say people who are about to interview or just want to know about how to ace their data science, data analyst, or machine learning interviews, go check out the book on Amazon. Um, it's basically the cracking the coding interview of our field. It didn't exist, so we made it happen. And uh, it's only a few months old, but it's already getting some great reviews. So I just tell any person who wants to break into these fang type companies or just level up in their career to go check it out. Mm-hmm. How can people find you? Yeah, so you can check out um, the book on Amazon, of course, just ace the data science interview. You can find me uh, and my blogs on nicksing.com. I also talk a ton on LinkedIn. I have about 65,000 followers on LinkedIn and I post tips daily around career, job hunting and data science. So you can always find me there at Nick Sing. Um, Yeah, LinkedIn, my website and buying the book are the best ways to go. Okay. to learn more about me and my tips. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for uh, sharing tips with us. And thanks everyone for joining us today, for watching us. Uh, there was one question, I didn't cover it, uh, but uh, yeah, sorry about that. But yeah, thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, thanks, Nick. And uh, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to be on. All right, talk to you later. Bye.